When you have more acetylcholine, you can retrieve store information easier, but more importantly, you can transfer that information to other parts of the brain much faster. So they have time to come up with a new motor solution before the opportunity is over. So that's why they can very easily transfer motor skill. They can go to their experience, then they can create a solution and transfer that fast enough so that there won't be a lag in the execution of the movement. It won't feel odd. It's like when someone doesn't have that capacity, when someone's like uh, programming or speed in, the, speed in the brain is slower, uh, that's when they do a new exercise and it, it just feels off. You feel like okay, it doesn't feel natural. That's because the speed of transfer from one skill or the solution you created is just not fast enough. That was Coach Christian Thibodeau speaking on the brain, neurotransmitters, and the speed of skill acquisition in exercise. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and here on episode 143, we have back on the show Coach Christian Thibodeau. Uh, Coach, uh, Coach Thibodeau is a master not only of all things bodybuilding, strength training, and athletic performance, but he also is incredibly talented in the world of psychology, psychological assessment, and brain science. And he has blended those worlds together in his neurotyping system, uh, which our first two episodes together he spoke in depth on, uh, particularly episode one. So uh, really quickly before we do get started, um, if you have not listened to the prior episodes or you are not familiar with neurotyping, I would actually highly recommend that you um, go back and listen to episodes 77 and 99. If you don't feel like doing that right now, I totally understand. Maybe you're driving down the road and it would probably not be safe to try to backlog this podcast to 77. Uh, that being said, uh, to minimize uh, any inconvenience, it just r- really quickly, this is the quick rundown of neurotyping. Uh, I am a neurotyping certified. I've gone through the course. It is amazing. Uh, it's everything that you've heard of that Christian's talked about on his own website in this podcast and much, much more. 
but essentially, uh, it stems from originally there was there was a lot of talk with uh, Charles Poliquin and the Five Elements and the book The Edge Effect, which I would have been in, into that stuff for a long time, long before I, I heard of the neurotyping system. Uh, but essentially, Christian has grouped athletes into five distinctive types based off their neurotransmitter profiles and which neurotransmitters uh, they seek, the, that they have a, a lower resting level of generally and that they seek to acquire. So, uh, for example, type one, uh, type 1s, there's a 1A and a 1B. They're dopamine-seeking athletes. They want, to, they want to do things that give them that dopamine uh, the dopamine rush. So uh, on an outside level uh, would be like risk-taking, like riding a fast motorcycle, extreme sports, those types of things. Um, but in the gym or in training, these are athletes who really thrive off intense movements, plyometrics, heavy weightlifting, um, speed, uh, any, or anything that's, that's fast and explosive and intense. Uh, and the 1A is more of an um, intensity-driven muscle, a muscle tension-driven. So less of an elastic athlete. Think of Ben Johnson. Think of someone who has a huge squat and is just a, a muscle, a ball of muscle, basically that prototype. Um, and also uh, there's certain psychological characteristics to take to that. The type 1B, I think Carl Lewis, uh, explosive athlete who is a little bit more elastic in nature, responds better to plyometrics and elastic training. Or think Zach Levine in pro basketball, um, someone who's just incredibly... Uh, able to use the sensitivity of the muscle spindles and transfer energy throughout the body. Uh, then you have the type 2s, which are adrenaline sensitive. Uh, although Christian on the show today is actually going to talk about how the type 2B is a little different in this regards. Um, and these are athletes who are, um, they are a little bit less nervous system driven, a little bit more muscle driven. The 2A is really a balance. It's half muscle driven, half neural driven, so responds well to a lot of different types of training, a lot of variety in training. Uh, responds well to layers of training, like doing some power, then strength, then some conditioning work in one session. 2B being all uh, muscle-driven, uh, more of a bodybuilding kind of type, if, typology, if you will. Uh, doesn't respond to doing uh, something that's neurally intense every session. Uh, the type 2s, also compared to the type 1s, are known for being a little bit more reward-driven. They, they seek affirmation from their social group. They're more team player type people where Type 1s uh, may be a little bit more of the team leaders. They tend not to care quite as much about of what others think of them. Uh, type 3 is, is uh, characterized by precision. And so they are people who, uh, they, they are sensitive to serotonin. Uh, they have high dopamine resting, typically, and they, they seek out things that can increase their serotonin level. So that's why they tend to enjoy endurance, predictable endurance events, and they tend to really favor precision in their workouts. So that's a quick summary of the three types. I don't want to take too much more time in this uh, intro uh, covering them, uh, but again, I would go back and check into that on old episodes if you could. So uh, again, I'm really thankful to have uh, someone as intelligent and brilliant and cutting edge as Christian on this show. So for you may think if you've listened to the last two episodes with him, how can we um, how can we put more information out, one up what we've done so far? Well, Christian does that and and, and more and this is a two-pronged episode with some really incredible information. The first, about 40 minutes, is a deep dive into child development, uh, neurology, and what it takes to make a elite athlete from a young age, um, especially before the age of two. 
And so not only that, but also uh, Christian t- gives his take on the tendency of people to overcoach uh, young athletes and why great natural athletes, uh, natural talent is often labeled as uncoachable. So the first 40 minutes is, and it also that part really resonates with some things that other um, guests on this show have said, Dr. Tommy John, Jeremy Frisch, and, and many others. And so uh, a great 40 minutes. I took a ton of notes on that. Uh, the second part is all about recent advances, his recent advances and ideas and thoughts in the neurotyping system. Uh, and, and this talk is going to particularly revolve around the type like 2Bs and the type 3s. And so these athletes who don't, you know, it's like you can throw a French contrast at athletes or an explosive lifting program at athletes and the 1As or the 1Bs and the 2As will just soak it up and respond really well. And even 1As or throw 5-3-1 at a 1A and they can they can really benefit from that type of program. But what do you do with a type 2B? Yeah, it does, And you have the team or group doing French contrast uh, or type 3. What are some alternatives for those athletes especially if their sport is not bodybuilding, if they're going for athletic performance and they're looking to increase their speed or their sports skill, um, it's important to be well-rounded. And as coaches, we need to have solutions for all these different types of athletes and in different training situations. So, uh, and that whole conversation also takes a turn into um, not only how to train those athletes, but also the role of weight training, barbell training, muscle uh, basically anything that stimulates an athlete from a muscle perspective and how they can tie into the sports skill, uh, not even in a potentiation manner, if you will, or what's also been kind of been called a, like a fatigue and then a new motor solution, but rather um, what Christian talks about the sensitivity effect of barbells and skill training. And it actually fits into a lot of really cool research that's been done lately. So, uh, I mean, I would say like this podcast, the first part and the second part aren't really entirely related, but they're both almost awesome, complete episodes in their own right. Um, And this was, I think this episode actually set the record for the most notes I've ever taken on a show because there was so much good stuff. Um, So I would actually encourage you to possibly listen to it in shifts um, because it's it's really just that good. And so anyways, let's get down to uh, the episode. Again, it is an incredible honor to have someone as brilliant as Christian back on the show. Uh, if you want to also um, learn more about him and what he's doing, check out his website at, th- at thibarmy.com, T-H-I-B-A-R-M-Y. And he also has a new neurotyping assessment uh, form if you want to figure out your own neurotype and take a survey for that. With that being said, uh, let's get on to the show with Christian Thibodeau. I was going to ask, uh, you're, you're a new uh, dad now, and uh, how long do you think it takes to kind of figure out what your, you know, your, your child's neurotype is based off their predisposition? Uh, well, dispositions. actually, the, the thing is that uh, are we recording? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Oh, okay. uh, because the reason I'm asking the question for all the listeners out there is that you probably missed out on almost 30 minutes of kick-ass material because the best stuff is always before the podcast. But to answer the question, um, I think that you need the brain to be fully formed. And of course, the brain is always constantly evolving and it won't be like fully developed until about 2022. Uh, But it will largely be what it will become uh, at around 10 to 12. You can still get clues before that, but before 10 to 12, it's still time to change. But the, the, the real thing, though, is. Uh, and that's something that's dear to my heart because as a new dad, uh, my okay, here's how my brain works. 
I always work by what I'm passionate about. So if I'm passionate about a, a topic at the moment, I will like become a savant on that topic within three months because I will spend 25 hours a day thinking about that topic and making connection with all what I have already acquired. And so right now I'm actually writing, uh, working on a book and it's going to be a seminar also and it's going to be called Your Kid Sucks and It's Your Fault. And basically I, um, I, I look at what needs to be done to optimize a kid's chance of becoming a great athlete. So from childbirth to professional level, for example, what you need to do step by step to optimize that. And one of the biggest problem I see with parenting is that parents, modern parents, castrate their kids' chances of being a great athlete before the first year of life is over. And for most people, before the second life year of life is over. And that starts with underdeveloping the three key systems responsible for what we call natural skills. Okay, uh, when we talk about someone as like is God-given skills, God-given ability, natural talent. Okay, natural talent is not natural talent. It's given by, by someone and it's not by God. Uh, natural talent is given by the parents. Um, and it, is, it all starts, the foundation is built in the first two years of life. What you do with your kid during the, those first two years will build the foundation upon which everything else can be built later on. And if you don't do the right things, or even worse, if you do the wrong things, you will always be a step behind regardless of what you do afterwards. You can, you can still fix something that has not been done optimally, but there will always be some problematic area, if, if, whatever it comes to um, motivation, uh, discipline, drive, confidence, or, or even uh, motor skills themselves. So to get back to uh, like what I call natural talent or natural ability, it, it depends really on two things, two main things. And the first one is movement skills the capacity to move and interact with your milieu and react to something in your environment and move properly move quickly move precisely uh, so it, it, it's balance it, it is adjustment to your environment and that depends on three key systems the visual system the vestibular system and the proprioceptive system mostly your hands and your feet and the 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 the, the, so, the hardware the hardware for these system are is laid out in the first two years of life the kid needs to have as much as much stimulation for these three systems as possible visual system the kid needs to see many different shapes many different colors not tv that's not real material you need to see real three-dimensional stuff in your environment so as many different shapes as many different colors movement and moving in the air having to adapt your visual field so that needs to be part of your child experience then the vestibular system and that's where most kids are lacking uh, because parents are lazy right? I understand you know I, I'm a parent now and I know it's hard work I mean you you work a full-time job maybe your spouse works a full-time job too you come back home and you're tired you don't want to necessarily play with your kid you, you put him in his 
in his cradle and you just like let him fall asleep. But really the vestibular system is developed when the kid has to adapt to rapidly changing positions in space. So when you do the, the airplane with your kid, you're moving him in the air. I actually do baby swings, like kettlebell swing with a baby <laughs> with my kid. I'm changing position rapidly. And what, I, what you notice is at first, the baby will stay soft when you're changing position, when you are doing the airplane and you're moving left, right, the, the, the limbs just go just go limp and they move around haphazardly. Uh, but, but very quickly, when you move him around, the muscle tone changes and now he adapts his body to the change in position. That is the development of the vestibular system. And that it needs to be emphasized because that is one of the main key to be able to move in a tri-dimensional space, rapidly adapting movement, being a great athlete overall. And then there's the proprioceptive system, mostly your hands and feet, that are basically the two main sensors when it comes to like being in relationship with an opponent or with the field or, or with space or with a, a tool, for example. So once again, you need to touch as many different textures as possible many different shapes as possible and the kids feet need to touch the floor as much as possible not wearing like five layers of clothing because oh it's going to be cold yeah but the feet need to be in contact with the floor to develop the proprioceptive system properly so so that these three systems are are, are the foundation to the first step the first element of natural skill natural talent and then the second one is creativity and that is what separates the truly great athletes over, like, from the, 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 the good physical specimen that lack that like, genius skill, that genius uh, athletic potential. And creativity is what separates the great from the rest. Creativity is the capacity in sports, I mean, to come up with new solutions to a problem you have, you have never faced before or that you have faced before, but you come up with an out-of-the-box solution that nobody expects. That is what creativity is. And creativity, uh, instead of just following a system, for example, creativity uh, is a combination of three elements. Once again, the number three is magical. The first element is a large accumulation of experience and as varied of experience as possible. The more experience you have, the more of those experiences you have stored in your brain and the better you are at retrieving that information and making connections with that information and the new situation you are facing to come up with a brand new innovative solution. That is the first step in creativity. Now, that requires a wide base of experience. If you only play ice hockey 12 months out of the year, you won't build it optimally. You need to be in as many different situations as possible, playing as many sports as possible. And even playing, if you want to play hockey 12 months out of the year, fine. But play hockey on, on different uh, ice shapes play or if you if you're playing soccer 12 months out of the year play soccer on different types of field small fields smaller balls bigger balls more opponents less opponents so that you can you always need to come up with new such solutions you accumulate a large baggage now if you, if we link that to neurotyping 
the key neurotransmitter here is acetylcholine because acetylcholine is basically the neurotransmitter responsible for the speed at which the information travels in your brain. So if you have more acetylcholine level, you can more easily store information, you can more easily retrieve it, and you can send it much faster to other portion of your brain to create that new solution. That's probably the reason why people with acetylcholine are naturally more quote unquote skilled or gifted because they can more easily transfer that information. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing that is required for creativity is a visceral need to experience everything. You need to be passionate about acquiring new experiences because the more experiences you accumulate, the more information you will store in your brain, information that you can later use to create new solution, new creative, innovative solution out of the box thinking. And the last thing is a willingness to experiment or a willingness to take risks. Because it's one thing to come up with that cool new solution, but if you're not willing to take the risk of failing or the willingness to go against your coach's will because he wants you to play the system, then you will never know if these experiences pan out and you will never become creative. That's actually the reason why a lot of time the truly great athlete, those who are like great natural talent are often labeled as uncoachable. Because when they're young, they, they don't apply the system because when they're playing, they, they see a better solution in their mind. The problem is that most of the time it works. And because of that, the coaches, well, it's uncoachable because well now the athlete will not listen to me because he's doing his own thing. Sure, but instead of trying to take an athlete who is 10 years old, and having played a structured system that even the, pro, the pros have problems applying, why don't you just focus on having fun, playing, less rules, less structures, let the kid play to develop their creativity? Sure, it will not make you feel like the next coach of the year in the NFL, for example, because many coaches overcoach young kids because of their own need to feel like they are the next Belichick the next Jackson uh, or the next um, Barry Trotz, for example. They, they want to believe that, hey, I have all the knowledge. I'm just stuck with these kids. I want to show up how great I am. But you know what? When you're working with young kids, like under 14, just let them play because that's when they need to develop their creativity. And that is the secret to greatness. They did a study in the Netherlands about they looked at the uh, soccer player for the national team and then they compared them to the players for the second and third division they wanted to see what was the main difference were they was it physical capacity was it body type was it uh, experience in in club play and they found that there was no significant difference in body type no significant difference in physical capacities no significant differences in their background in club play from their very very early age the only difference they could find was the amount of unstructured play. The, the, the elite athlete, the best of the best, the, 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 the naturally skilled athletes had a lot more non-structured play during their childhood, meaning they might play backyard soccer, soccer in the street, using different shapes of field. Like instead of having 100 meters to work with, you might have 20. So you can't rely on the passing as much. You need to dribble a bit more. Maybe you didn't have money to buy a, a, a full-size ball. You had to rely on a coconut. 
look at what the Brazilian did. The Brazilian, the kids played in the street with anything they could get their hands on. They became motor geniuses when it comes to one-on-one -on -one play. And when they started playing like that on the, on the international level, people were not ready for it because they, weren't, they were all about the system. So, so really, it's all about doing the right things at the right time. And it all starts with the childhood, doing everything possible to, so that the, the, the child will have the best stimulation possible to develop all of their systems. And then allow your children to build his own creativity. At first, you will need to kind of direct the learning because you need to present those stimulus to the kid because he cannot yet walk, cannot yet move. But as soon as he can move in space, now it's up to him to experience new stuff because you want to develop their curiosity, which is very important, the second factor, to develop creativity. And then as a parent, it's your job to allow your kid to be in as many different situations as possible, many different opportunities to accumulate training knowledge. So that that's a big tangent here. <laughs> no, that's a huge, that's an awesome tangent. That is a huge answer. I was writing, I was kind of writing things down along the way, like, uh, and one of the things that immediately comes to mind too is, I mean, creativity is so, I feel like so, so, so underrated. Uh, in And like you said, it, it really starts from that point where you're a child and under 14. And it was in the little book of talent by Daniel Coyle. He was talking about one of the things that was really important in like these talent beds across the world was that the, the facilities to train were kind of crappy. Like, and, and maybe part of that was like, you know, it says to you, you haven't made it yet. It's like Rocky three. But I was thinking about, um, there was a book called Bounce where like the this guy was like the fastest ping pong player in the world or something like he was uh, out of the UK and he grew up playing where he had to have his back against the wall there was so little space like his back was against the wall and he just had to like he just had to deal with it and move faster and exactly I mean and that's exactly what I mean you he, he adapted to a different types of circumstances and, and develop his own strategies his own uh, idiosyncrasies that made him special and the more of these situations you have, the better. Now, the problem is that we are, as parents, as coaches, we, are, we have two enemies when it comes to the development of our, our children. The first one is uh, that, okay, the, the reason why people underestimate the importance of creativity is that creative, creativity cannot be taught. You cannot coach it, okay? It's something that you develop through your own experience. So coaches... As I mentioned earlier, they want to feel important. They want to feel like, hey, I deserve to be the top. So instead of thinking about the kid, they think about themselves. So they, they, they underplay the value of creativity because they want to overemphasize their importance in teaching the skills, teaching the system. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second reason why we underestimate creativity uh, is that it's, it's, it's hard to, to quantify it. I mean, you, you need to be able to, to, to assess it. You need to be able to find the best ways to, to stimulate it. And it's hard work for the parent and it's hard work for the kid. And you need to be able to put yourself out there and you need to go against the grain. I mean, just like look in sports. Now what you have is they have sports camp, football camps that, 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 have you play football 12 months out of the year because they want your money. If you want your kids to be better, well, I'm going to go send him to quarterback school at, at eight years old. And now it's like, it's like mandatory. Here in Canada, we have hockey schools like in the summer 
kids will go to a three months, a three weeks skating school. Then it's going to be three weeks uh, like defense school. So it's just to, to make make their money. And then we have examples like like Tiger Woods. Okay, Tiger Woods has done more to destroy children's sport than any human being ever by being great despite early specialization. Okay. So every time now, if me, I go up to a parent and I t I'll tell him, well, you know what? You shouldn't have your kid play hockey 12 months out of the year when he's six. You shouldn't do all of these training camps. You shouldn't do other sports. You will always reply, yeah, but Tiger Woods started playing at three and he only played golf and he became the greatest player in the world. How can you argue that? Because it's true. However, look at the sport he's playing. In golf, you're not interacting with other players. You don't interact with opponents. You don't interact with suddenly changing situation. You don't have to create on the spot strategies in a millisecond. You don't have to react. You can plan every shot. You can think it through. It's just basically applying a simple motor pattern. So sports like golf, sports like gymnastics, sports like figure skating, of course, early specialization can work because it's only about technique and just repeating a routine, repeating a movement, repeating your, 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 your skill on, on, on the apparatus, for example. That can work. That doesn't mean it makes balanced individuals. But for, from a sports perspective, sure, it can work. But you cannot apply the same logic to football. You cannot apply the same logic to basketball, to hockey to any other sports where you are playing against an opponent, okay? Uh, look at the, at the Clemson team that, 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 that won the national championship. More than 80% of their players were two sports athletes or more in high school. Uh, look at, at most of, okay, how many NFL superstars were at least two sports stars? Most of them, okay? So, so to me, when you play team sports, when you play sports where you need that creativity, when you need that talent, uh, specialization is the enemy of performance. Sadly, we are fighting against the big business because it's easy to make money from parents who are eager to see their kid become stars at 12 years of age. Uh, I remember, okay, I was... When I started training athletes, right, I was coaching hockey players and figure skaters. And among the skaters I was working with was two were two national champions, junior and, and, and senior. And one of the the youngest skaters, she was, I think she was six or seven because we had kids of all ages. And her mother actually hired me to train her in a gym two more times per week. She was six or seven. And she was already skating with the team like 12 hours a week. And her mother was renting a coach and the arena for a few hours every weekend so that she can practice even more. So do you know what I did with the girl? I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to take the contract. I'm going to train her, but you cannot be in the room. Again, well, that was like 15 years ago. I'm not sure if in, in 2019 they would let a male coach be alone with a female skater of six years old alone in the gym, but at the time it worked. And I had her tell me about her day for an hour. And then we just played. Because there's no, literally nothing more stupid than having a six-year-old kid who's already skating more than 15 hours a week, already doing some training with the team once a week, training two more days a week. It just didn't make sense. I mean, if you want to kill 
a kid's motivation to train and a motivation to excel at anything in life. Because the message you're telling her, sure, it's important to work hard, but she will learn to hate anything that she first loved. And that is something that a child cannot live with. You need to foster passion in your kid. They need to become passionate about a sport. And if you play a sport 12 months out of the year, sure, some people might keep that passion up. But in most cases, you need to miss it. If you don't play, uh, okay, when I played football and I, I, we didn't play for like eight months, I couldn't wait to put the shoulder pads on and hit somebody, dude. I just couldn't wait for it. And when, I, when the football season was over, I couldn't wait to play baseball. And that's like, I, I was eager to play. I, I had rekindled motivation. But if I had to play football 12 months out of the year, I would completely lose interest. It would become a job, not a passion. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, and you being a you being a two A, do you think that plays into it too? Like the, the athletes with higher novelty as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, some people naturally need or, or want more novelty, but it, it, it's kind of, it could be like the, the chicken and the egg thing, right? Because the Type One A, for example, Type One A doesn't have great motor skill they don't learn as fast as the 1b they are super competitive super driven very passionate uh, but they don't want as much variation they can stick to the same exercises for a long time as long as they see the potential to get stronger they don't need to do many different sports or they don't want to but is it are they like that because during their childhood they were not exposed to situation that allowed them to build their acetylcholinergic system so they they were left with maybe they are dopamine dominant super sensitive but they never fully developed their acetylcholinergic system or not as efficiently as the 1b and because of that they became 1a or are they 1a and therefore they were not attracted to playing many sports when they were younger so it's kind of a hard question to answer i think it's probably a little bit of both yeah a little bit of chicken those chicken and the egg ones always are right as, yeah. as you were talking, it's it's funny. I, sometimes I think about how I came to be the athlete I came to be. I, I try to get um, out of the weight room and play sports as much as it will. the situation presents it to me just to kind of like stay in touch with that side of myself. I was a basketball on track, and I've been playing uh, basketball about the middle of the day with a, a WNBA player and then a, a practice player for the um, the basketball team. And I, I – I get my butt kicked, man. Like, I mean, it's like, it's really bad and I try hard and it's just, but it just makes me realize as I'm playing, like I am just a step slower with opening and closing feedback loops and tracking things, even though I'm a great athlete. And even when I was playing, it was like, I was okay with, you know, I just, I was a decent shooter because I just practiced it a ton. But I just think I missed uh, that variety of ball sports in my younger years. Like I, I played playground games and tag and chasing and I was good at reacting to a person but I just don't think I played enough ball sports when I was before I was like you know, six or seven. I, and I think that was it for me. I think that was a big difference well, it, maker. It, 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 you, you probably had very good uh, visual development, very good vestibular development, which gave you that motor skill. But maybe you were lagging in the proprioceptive element, especially with your hands when you were younger, giving you a little bit less skill in the ball sports. Yeah, I could totally see that. I should have been like Andre Agassi in his crib or whatever when they were like, yeah. <laughs> that would have fixed it all for me. I mean, I, I'm glad I found track. I think that's why I found track because like, you know, it's just 
that's just where I, where I was headed because I couldn't keep up with the the ball sports. It just wasn't. I had to work so much harder to keep up, and it was usually physicality that kept me in the game. But it was only going to take me so far, you know. You, you know what? It's interesting you mentioned basketball because one day, if there's one sport that really exemplifies what I mean by the importance of creativity, it's basketball. I mean, these kids, I would I would venture. As far as to say that 75% of their playing time when they're young, it's in backyard basketball or it's it's not in structured practice. Most of them play basketball like two on two, three on three, half court, uh, like with limited rules, different strategies, no structure uh, with their friends. And but that's how you develop creativity. That's how you develop creativity. You can be a very good I skill player, skill in a sense of having good body control, having a good shot, knowing what to do technically and tactically, but like missing that one element that makes you a superstar, that makes you LeBron James, that makes you Michael Jordan, that, that creativity that comes w with unstructured play. Oh, yeah, that stuff is so huge. And uh, I've learned a lot about that from uh, talking with Jeremy Frisch as well, who's been on this show. And and just like and, and yeah, like the nothing like kind of kills me more too than seeing uh, like coaches working with young athletes like eight, nine, ten, and they're just over coaching everything. And they're just not letting them play and solve the problem. And it's like these these kids are good at solving problems. Like they, you know, that's <laughs> the, the human brain works pretty well. And uh, no, I I totally agree. It's like it's almost like we have to put our own egos as coaches aside when we know we're in that situation where we just need to let the kids do their thing and develop. Absolutely. If you want to do something for a kid, like make sure that they have a great first two years of their life. That's it's funny because I don't know how it is like with the sports scene in the U.S. But if we look here in uh, in ice hockey, especially ice hockey is like really ugly. You have parents that would go to their kids game like the kids are like eight years old and the parents will, will, will scream at the referees, will scream at a coach, like using profanities and stuff like that. Play my kid, put him on, a, uh, put him on, a, on a, the penalty kill, put him, put him on a, the power play, my kid's good. You know what, your kid sucks and it's your fault because when he was one, when he was six months old, when he was two, you would come home from work and instead of you were tired, I understand, but instead of sp spending some time with his kids, stimulating him, you put him on a cradle and you, when, he, when he started screaming, what did you do? You put him in front of a flat screen TV. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when you put a kid in front of a TV, it's magic. He stops crying. You know why? Because any modern screen, okay, uh, like a flat screen TV, like, like uh, a computer, like a tablet, uh, like a iPhone, a smartphone, it projects images by using blue light. And blue light is very stimulatory on the dopaminergic receptors. So it creates a huge dopamine uh, stimulation, produces a huge pleasure sensation. That's why these iPhones, these tablets, these flat screen TVs are so addictive. But here's the problem. When you put a young kid in front of a flat screen TV, because there, there's, that's the only type of TVs we have left. When you put a kid in front of a flat screen TV that emits blue light, it creates a stimulation on the still developing dopaminergic receptors that is way too strong for their dopaminergic receptors to handle. 
What happens to a receptor when it receives a stimulation that is excessive? That's actually a question. Oh, uh, when it, sorry, when it, the, what happens to dopamine so, so, so receptor if, when it's excessive? If a, if a receptor, like dopaminergic receptors, adrenergic receptors, it is overly stimulated way too much compared to what it can handle, what will be the reaction of the body? How does it lose its sensitivity to dopamine over time? Absolutely. So, so, so when you put a kid in front of a flat screen TV, the dopamine stimulation from the blue light is way, way, way too much for what the brain can handle, the kid's brain can handle, and it could actually permanently desensitize the dopaminergic receptors. And that might actually be one of the reasons why the modern kids are, are, are unmotivated or seen as mm. unmotivated, lazy, no motivation. Uh, no confidence, no drive, because they be basically created a situation where they are basically dopamine-less. So they become overly reliant on adrenaline. And what happens when that happens is then they can they are open to like crazy behavior, uh, misbehaving, attention deficit disorder. Um, can also lead to uh, drug use, several stimulant use, stuff like that. But if basically we, we understand that the best athletes in the world, uh, those who are the most competitive athletes, especially in strength and power sports, are very sensitive to dopamine. Okay, the, Those who are the best under pressure, those who are the most competitive, those who are the most driven, those who are uh, very confident, well, they have a very high sensitivity to dopamine. By putting your kid in front of a TV before he is two, you are actually killing his chances of being a great athlete. So that is literally, literally the worst thing you can do as a parent. Yeah. So your kid sucks <laughs> and it's your fault because you were too lazy to, instead of trying to calm your kid down when he was crying, by the way, when it, the development of the serotoninergic system is actually dependent on the reassuring of the parent when the kid's crying. When a kid cries and you calm him down, that actually contributes greatly to the development of the serotoninergic system. So if you don't, <laughs> if instead of like cradling your kid in your arms or trying to calm him down when he's crying, you put him in front of a TV, you're actually burning your dopamine receptors and you are probably underdeveloping your serotoninergic system. Not a great mix if you want to be a highly competitive athlete. That is, uh, that is crazy stuff. I, I... <laughs> Why do you think we have kids? or six years old, six years old, and they suffer from anxiety problem. They suffer from clinical depression. How can a six-year-old suffer from anxiety and depression? What will it be like when they have rent to pay, when they have a family on their own? Dude, that, they're not gonna go far. But how could a kid that young have anxiety, real anxiety problem and depression? It, it can only be problem with dopamine and serotonin. Your kid sucks, and it's your fault. Yeah, I, I love that title. I that that's gonna be a bestseller for sure. My, uh, oh. I, uh, my... Dude, so, like, put a bleep during the podcast. Someone is gonna steal the title. <laughs> yeah, no, I I can do that. Yeah, I, I'll try. I will try. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's intellectual. I think it's intellectual property since it's out there. I'm not sure, but uh, hey, all right. Uh, that's no, that is awesome. Um, I, you know, I read a book before my daughter was born. She's two and a half now and it was called like brain rules for baby. And it was yeah, talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was talking about, yeah, no screens until age three. I was yeah. so gung ho on it too. 
Uh, I just remember the first time me and my wife were at our wits end when you know, my daughter was about like one and a half or somewhere in there. And we're like, fine, just give her, just let her watch. Um, I don't even know what it is, but whatever it is on YouTube that, that she likes. And literally the second, um, the second, like she, her eyes hit that screen. It's like a zombie. It's like, yeah. like, it's crazy. It's and like, it pulls <laughs> the it's a... yeah. And so Same reaction as if you're suddenly taking speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's totally different. It's totally different. And then, like, you know, usually my daughter would loves to go to the park. But if like you, you know, if she's if she's watching something and it's like, hey, you want to go to the park? She's like, eh. I'm like, no, you're going to the park right now. So, uh, yeah, it's it's cool to hear the um, the neuro the neurological um, aspects of all that and why that you know the the exact why why that's important. Uh, what you're saying too, it fits so well. I, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Tommy John Alex Lee a few. Uh, like a month ago, and uh, Dr. Tommy John was talking about uh, the three S's that that kind of really uh, kill our children's development, which is shoes, uh, screens, and swaddling. <laughs> and when you were oh, talk, yeah. talking about moving, I was thinking about swaddling. And it's like my kids hated. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm trying not to derail us into what I do with my kids, but like, like my kids just hated getting swaddled. So we eventually gave it up. We're like, all right, fine. Just you know, we'll put you in a blanket and hope you don't like you know tie yourself up in it too bad or something. Yeah. It's just like, and same with shoes. My daughter goes to the park and she hates wearing her shoes, even if it's cold. She's like, I want to take my shoes off. I'm like, yeah, fine. Um, so it's really, really cool thing. I, it's like, I don't want to use this show to well, talk about when, my kids. For more than but... one smart people say the same thing for, and they come from completely different fields. Normally it's because it's the truth. Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, that's, that is awesome. And I think that again, it's like, you can't, uh, it's so important for people to see that because there's only so much making up for that you can do once the athlete hits maturity. It's like, you, you know, it's it's such a the process is so important. So uh, I did want to get into um, a little bit in terms of uh, some of the other training and performance questions that I had, and one of which was just uh, recent developments in the world of neurotyping. Is there anything uh, since we last talked, or since you've really rolled out the system that you've been um, uh, discovering or, or or thinking about or, or looking at in a new light as you as we go through or you go through the well, well, process. Actually, I I, I completely reshot the the new tapping online seminar. Uh, I, I reshot it last week, and uh, it's going to be in three parts. And though, of course, those who already purchased the level the the, the, the first uh, edition will have uh, like a massive massive discount because there's like twenty five. 30% new material, but it doesn't warrant like being the full price for it. But we, we shot at everything because there there are some evolutions. I think the main one is, of course, the way I explain it because I've been teaching that seminar so so often now that it, I, I know what is harder to understand. But the main difference in the system itself is the, uh, the teaching of the role of glutamate. Because, you know, we talked about like the type one being dopamine dominant, so very sensitive to dopamine. The type two, the type two being more sensitive or more driven by adrenaline. The type three uh, being uh, more driven by a lack of, of serotonin or lack of inhibitors in general. But you know what? The, the, the adrenaline dominance, because it was based on the original Cloninger system of the type one, type two, type three dominances. But it never really made sense to me that the type 2B's main excitatory neurotransmitter was the type 2, was adrenaline, because that wouldn't explain the highly emotional behavior, the, the drastic mood swings, the, the, the moodiness, the taking everything personal, 
but more importantly, like the amplified emotional response to everything. And that's where I started digging a lot more. And what I found, and it actually makes sense because a type 2B's main characteristic is low GABA. That's why they have more social anxiety, for example, and they are more prone to choking under pressure because GABA and serotonin, GABA plays a big role in preventing athletes from choking under pressure. And 2Bs are the most prone to choking under pressure because they have low GABA. But with low GABA comes one thing. It's excessive glutamate. Because glutamate, another neurotransmitter that also plays an excitatory role in the nervous system, glutamate is what is used to produce GABA. So you convert glutamate into GABA by an enzyme called glutamate decarboxylase. So that, that enzyme will take glutamate and convert it to GABA. Now, two Bs having low GABA can only mean that they suck at converting glutamate into GABA. Now, so I, I started reading more on glutamate and lo and behold, it is what I would call the emotional amplifier. Glutamate increases the intensity of all your emotions, both good or bad. When you have something good happen to you, it's the best day of your life. When a little small bad thing happen is, God, I want to kill myself, okay? And that actually explains why people have like frequent mood swings. Like they are super happy one minute and then they want to open their veins up an hour later and seemingly nothing happened. And not surprisingly, excess glutamate has been linked to bipolar disorders among other uh, brain disorders because glutamate in excess is neurotoxic. Uh, so that's the first thing that, that, that gave me a clue that, okay, maybe type 2Bs, the, the, the main excitatory neurotransmitter is glutamate. So I started changing the way I explain the neurotransmitters, uh, the, the, the neurotypes. Now what I do is I, I explain that each neurotype has one main excitatory neurotransmitter and one main inhibitory neurotransmitter in most cases. So you would have uh, one that hems you up, one that calms you down. Of course, you have all the neurotransmitters, but you have one system that is more efficient than the other. And when you look at the type 1A, for example, their main excitatory neurotransmitter is dopamine. Their main inhibitory neurotransmitter is GABA. GABA and serotonin, they are both calming the brain down. The way I could, I could explain them, GABA is more like the parking brake and serotonin is the brake pedal. GABA is all or nothing. Serotonin is a lot more easily adjustable, right? So the 1A has a personality that's on or off. He won't change for anybody. He won't have shades of gray. He is black or white. So GABA, whereas the type 1B, his main excitatory neurotransmitter is also dopamine, but his main inhibitory neurotransmitter is serotonin. So serotonin allows the 1B to be a lot more adjustable than the type 1A while still being confident, driven, competitive. As opposed to the type 2A, while well, the 2A is like a 1B light. Uh, type 2A with decent acetylcholine can easily be mistaken for a 1B because he also has a lot more adjustability to his behavior. Now, so that's for 1A, one, 1B. One the 2B, I'll get back to the 2A later. The 2B's main excitatory neurotransmitter now is glutamate. So he's, he also has a good adrenaline sensitivity, moderate dopamine sensitivity, but very high amount of glutamate, not just sensitivity, but he has a good amount, 
because he cannot convert it efficiently into GABA, which is why he has low GABA. That's the main reason. And the type 3, the type 3 will have um, adrenaline and dopamine as both co-excitory neurotransmitter. That's why they are already always amped up. That's why their brain is always working on all cylinders. That's why their brain, they are always overthinking, overanalyzing everything because they have dopamine and adrenaline always somewhat working. You know, they are resistant to it, but they have a high level of them and they are very, they have very low level of serotonin and also low level of GABA. Uh, so, so that gave them their, their potential. Now, two A's, two A's normally have a pretty balanced level, level of all the neurotransmitter, except for their very strong adrenergic sensitivity. They have pretty much equal GABA, serotonin, acetylcholine, dopamine, glutamate, which is why they can actually be social chameleons. They have the neurological tools to become any profile they want in the short term. They cannot sustain it, but they can pretend to be it because they have the tools to act uh, like another type. So that's the main difference I use in the teaching of the neurotypes. It's a bit more complex than that, but, but that gives a, a pretty good, uh, easy to understand uh, illustration of the concept. Now, the glutamate to me is the big thing, and, and it's probably why you see more and more and more and more to bees in our North American and now European societies. Why? Because our foods are full of glutamate. If you eat fast, fast food, if you eat a Chinese buffet, if you eat frozen meals, if you drink commercial coffee, chances are you are ingesting good amounts of glutamate on a daily basis, either on in the direct form called MSG, monosodium glutamate, or because now it has a bad name for being neurotoxic, companies are using L-glutamic acid instead, which is readily converted into glutamate inside the body. So it does the same thing. Now you ask me, why would a fast food chain, why would a Chinese buffet, why would a commercial coffee place add glutamate in their foods? It's because glutamate is an emotional amplifier. So when you like something, you will love it with glutamate. Uh, funny story, okay, that's, okay, that was at least, at least 18 years ago, probably more than that. I was still living with my parents, so it has to be at least 23 years ago. And that's the first time I bought a George Foreman grill. The George Foreman grill just came out. So that tells you how whole that story is. So when I bought my George Foreman grill, I couldn't wait to make some steak for myself. And I found McDonald's hamburgers recipe on the internet. Dude, I'm going to make the same burgers as McDonald's. And one of the ingredients was MSG, monosodium glutamate, because it's a food additive, but it's also a neurotransmitter. And now the problem is because it's everywhere, that or now L-glutamic acid, because MSG has a bad name nowadays, you actually build up glutamate in your brain and you probably lack the enzymes capable of converting it into, into GABA and now you artificially become a 2B. You could have started as a 1B, a 1A, mostly a 1A, 
But if you overdo the glutamate thing, you could actually find yourself moving toward that 2B scale because you, you, you actually chemically created a brain imbalance by increasing glutamate too much compared to GABA. On top of that, it does have many neurotoxic elements, as I mentioned. So, so that's one of the problem. But and also that that's going off topic. But you know how I am. I'm somebody who always go at a big tangents. That's actually one of the reasons behind the popularity of the keto diet. Now you, I'm, you, I can hear your brain like tinkering. Why would the keto diet be related to excess glutamate in the diet or the increase in the number of two Bs in the world. Here's why. Okay. The keto diet. Some people will do it and they will suddenly feel like a new person. Much less anxiety. Sleeping better. So they stop overthinking. They stop taking everything personal. They are a lot more mellow, a lot more balanced. Life is good. And it's those people who become the preachers. Because, dude, I, I was feeling like total crap before. Just doing this keto diet, I feel like I've never felt before. These people were 2Bs. People who had too much glutamate. Even if they were not pure 2Bs, they had an excess glutamate, probably because of their diet or their incapacity to convert glutamate into GABA. Where does the keto diet come into play? Ketones, whether they are exogenous or, or endogenous ketones, they increase the activity of the uh, glutamate decarboxylase enzyme, the enzyme responsible for converting glutamate into GABA. That enzyme is made more efficient when you have ketones in your body. So that means that the keto diet, because it produces ketones, you can take more of the glutamate you build up to convert it into GABA. So now you're solving two problems with one stone. You are decreasing the moodiness, the mood swings, the taking everything personal that glutamate brings you, the mental instability, and you increase GABA, which decreases your anxiety and makes you sleep better and respond better to stress. In that case, keto is a great dietary intervention. I'm not saying it's a great long-term solution, but to fix an excess glutamate problem, it were great, especially if you use supplemental vitamin B6 uh, because it increases also the efficacy of the enzyme. But if you give the same keto diet to a type 3, someone who has low serotonin, the problem with the keto diet is that, yes, it increases GABA but it also decreases serotonin. So if your problem was GABA because you have too much glutamate, perfect. If your problem is low serotonin, you're gonna feel even worse. You're gonna have problems concentrating, no motivation, no drive, super anxious, incapable of sleeping, can shut your brain off. Because now you, you tanked, the neurotransmitter was already pretty low. The thing is that Okay, two important neurotransmitters, uh, amino acids, tyrosine, tryptophan. Okay, tyrosine is mostly used to produce dopamine. Tryptophan will produce serotonin. Now, when you eat both, and you do because every time you eat protein, you have both, uh, you will always favor the transport of one of these two neurotransmitters, uh, amino acids to make neurotransmitters. And it depends on what you ate. If I hate if I ate 
more proteins and fats, I will favor the absorption of tyrosine, thus increasing dopamine. If I had protein and carbs or more carbs, I would favor the absorption of tryptophan, favoring serotonin. So a low-carb diet that's rich in fat and protein will naturally maximize dopamine while decreasing serotonin. So that's why for some people, the keto can actually make you feel great. For some people, it will actually make you feel like shit and feel anxious. So it, it doesn't work for everybody. And just because it makes you feel amazing, don't try to convert every, everybody in your surrounding because it will not work optimally brain-wise for everybody. Yeah, I, I can absolutely see that um, with the with the keto diet and uh, what you're saying with the two Bs. Like, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I, and I've always heard like you know low carb diets are individualized, but I'd never really thought about why. Like, I, I always knew it was, but so that uh, it certainly makes uh, the world a sense to me. And I think it can help us all with uh, with yeah, just that. Yeah, yeah, like and and those people who do become like the preachers of it, like, oh, this is so good. And uh, yeah, it. it it totally makes sense how individualized it can be. Yeah, and never under, um, underestimate how powerful something that makes you feel great can become for you. So you can very easily be seduced by something that completely changed the way you feel. I understand that. And if keto made you feel like a new person, dude, awesome, okay? but it will not work universally for everybody. And I'm not talking about fat loss, I'm just talking about optimizing your brain, which is the cornerstone to everything, because if you feel like crap, then you, you won't be able to sustain the diet in the first place, you won't be able to train hard, you won't be able to work hard, you have no quality of life, your sex drive will go down, not a good place to be. So it's all about optimizing brain, that's the first thing you need to establish. Yeah. Oh, certainly. It's uh, yeah. It all really starts at the yeah, the level of the brain and, and how the athletes responding to it. And it's, uh, I wanted to I wanted to get with the two B. You're talking about that, and I, I really wanted to get into a little bit of training stuff in terms of nuts and bolts. And and one of the, the training constructs I've always really had a good time exploring was French contrast. And since I'm yeah. a one B, it's like this is the best ever. Everyone, should, you know, initially yeah. everyone should do this. Like, you know, in, in my before I found the neurotyping system, shoot, I even had, and I, I think I had intuitively found a few areas where like athletes wouldn't, like there was a, there's a one AI train and we just gotten them out of the French contrast just cause it felt like the right thing to do. Uh, but I was putting French contrast on type threes just without even, mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, you guys need to be more explosive. Okay. Let's, let's do this. And, uh, yeah, you know, the one A can do it. I mean, it's not optimal, but it won't screw them over either. They will still get progress from it. The type 3 and the type 2Bs might not be optimal before. The type 1A, 1B, and 2As, it can work pretty well. Yeah, I, I um, with the contrast, I was curious because I was going through um, in your programs and, and the ideas that you have for like 2Bs and 3s. What's um, and let's say this is for athlete, athletes who maybe you know if you're a two B or three maybe you're a middle distance runner in track and field or a middle distance swimmer or you know team sport player, uh, what and you're trying to come up with some sort of com complex or contrast for these athletes, yeah. Yeah. how does that change the game? Well, well, first understand that the programs that are being sold on my website are for body composition, so they are extremely different than our program for athletes. It's not even even remotely in the same ballpark. Uh, it's the same philosophy in that okay, that person can do more explosive work, can do more uh, mind-muscle work, can do more volume, whatever. Uh, but it's just, just a caveat. Now, as far as complexes are concerned, 
depending on a neurotype and what you're trying to accomplish, then you will have different types. So for, for example, for type three, uh, you, you, you probably will go, the way I would do it is normally the second exercise in a contrast is something that you should be comfortable with, something that uh, you're good at, something that decreases stress level. So that's why for you, the French contrast works great. Uh, now, for type three, for example, uh, it would be more a matter of like doing uh, a strength exercise along with a resistance exercise. So we could do, for example, for legs, could do a squat, uh, then it could be, for example, a prowler push, uh, not sprinting, but more than walking speed if you catch mm -hmm. my drift, but for a fairly long duration, like 60 to 70 seconds. More importantly, with it would be the exercise selection. For a type three, you want to go with exercises with the least amount of either technical difficulty, type two Bs and threes. You want the least amount of technical difficulty or something that is close to what they are doing in their sport. So if you're working with a swimmer, you could actually do a contrast of uh, chin-ups and swimming. Uh, that could actually work pretty well. Or if you are a runner, it could be front squats and 400 meter sprints. For example, it's close to your motor skill, doesn't create too much stress. So when you understand what you're good at and what your brain is supposed to do, and you put something close to that in the, in the second exercise, that, 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 that's gonna work better. Now, with a type 1B, you can actually use very general exercises. They don't even have to be sport specific to get to read the most effect because the more acetylcholine you have, the more transfer you're gonna have from one skill to the other. The reason for that is what I explained earlier. The one you have more acetylcholine and the type 1B and the type 2As are those who have the most acetylcholine. When you have more acetylcholine, you can retrieve store information easier, but more importantly, you can transfer that information to other parts of the brain much faster. So they have time to come up with a new motor solution before the opportunity is over. So that's why they can very easily transfer motor skill. They can go to their experience, then they can create a solution and transfer that fast enough so that there won't be a lag in the execution of the movement. It won't feel odd. It's like when someone doesn't have that capacity, when someone's like uh, programming or speed in, the, speed in the brain is slower, uh, that's when they do a new exercise and it, it just feels off. You feel like okay, it doesn't feel natural. That's because the speed of transfer from one skill or the solution you created is just not fast enough. And there's a lag between the execution and the proper programming and, and graining of the new motor pattern. Whereas someone who has a lot of acetylcholine can do that very, very fast. By the way, one thing I wanna clear out, uh, okay, uh, I often use and that's all one, one other thing I change in, in the teaching of the neurotyping system. Um, there is no such thing as multitasking. Okay? One of the, the, the key points to know if you are a, a 1B or a 2A, if you have acetylcholine rather, um, is if you can multitask. In reality, it, it is absolutely impossible to multitask. The brain cannot do two things at once. It can only do one task at a, at a time. However, you can perceive 
to be multitasking if you have a lot of acetylcholine because now the information can move really, really fast in your brain, allowing you to switch from one task to the other extremely rapidly, so fast that you can have the impression that you're doing both at the exact same time. The less acetylcholine you have, the slower the information goes in your brain, the less you can switch from one activity to the other. So you don't have the illusion of that multitasking. But it's semantics, but it still feels like multitasking. I just want to be precise because if there are neuroscientists listening and they say, oh, you can't multitask. I I don't want to look like an idiot because I I said, well, you need to be multitasking if you are 1B, for example. (laughs) That's awesome. No, I totally get that. Yeah, like it's, I mean, you can't, I mean, the only example I could think of doing two things is once is that president who could write with both hands at the same time or, or whatever it was yeah. like I, I yeah I definitely can't I totally agree there and I so so a 1b or someone with high acetylcholine like you um was it was he actually like writing or it was just like maybe it was rehearsed if he rehearsed yeah. it before it becomes only one yeah. gesture you're just doing two different things with both hands it's like if I if I'm Throwing a baseball, I mean, both sides are working, but they're doing two different things. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that can exactly. be a learn. It's like one skill, and in that one skill, you're doing two different things with both hands. So that could actually be a learn, uh, but you wouldn't be able to think about, I want to re- write something. It needs to be rehearsed before you can actually do it. No, I'm, I'm glad you stopped me there, actually, because, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, yeah, because how could you, you'd have to have two brains to, to yeah, do that. But, but it's, a, it's a great parlor trick, though. Yeah, oh, 100%. I'm sure, I'm sure if I helped them get the if presidency you want to convince in some way, someone of your form. intellectual superiority, just do that. I mean, I will, it would be worth practicing it just to be able to do that. That is that is the ultimate one-upper. Like, I can't think of too many things that are could one-up that. Like, oh, look what I can do. <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, I was going to, so yeah, I was, I was asking uh, with the acetylcholine, the French contrast, like, and in that, and, and I really like the idea of, because I was going to get to this as well in in, in um, training like two Bs and threes in the weight room who have weight limits for their sport. Uh, yeah. I really like how you said you, you could you could mix that with an endurance base of the sport skill. Yes. And it seems like that would be really good for the sensitivity as well. Like you get a little fatigue in the pull-ups and now you feel the fatigue in the water. Like, And how well, has it changed things? Or, or? If you want to improve the mind-muscle connection. That's a great way provided that you don't create too much fatigue in, in the target muscle because it, that, that's the principle of pre-fatigue. Pre-fatigue, most people do it wrong. Okay, The purpose of pre-fatigue is not so much to build muscle but to improve the mind-muscle connection with the key muscle in the exercise, maybe one that you're not activating properly. And it works by pre-activating a muscle with an isolation exercise or an exercise where you can feel that muscle work better and that will increase the sensitivity of the neuromuscular junction. So basically your muscles become more reactive to the the neural impulse. Uh, Now if you do that but you train the muscle to failure then it will have the reverse effect because now the muscle is so tired that your body needs to rely on other muscles mm-hmm. to get the job done and you actually learn to use the opposite muscle. But if you create just enough stimulation to sensitize the neuromuscular junction and then you get you get a little rest, it does not detract from the performance of the muscle. You don't learn to rely on other muscle groups, but now you can recruit that muscle better, both by feeling it better, so from a technical perspective, it helps you do better technique because you're feeling what you're doing a lot better, 
but it also actually, from a physiological standpoint, increased the contracted strength of the muscle for a, a brief period. So that would be the purpose. But, but from a, also a strength transfer point of view, uh, if you combine a lifting exercise with a sport exercise, uh, especially with people who have low skill transfer, that could actually help them transfer the gains from the weight room to sport performance a lot better. I mean, a, a 1B probably won't have that problem because they have great motor skill transfer, but take a 2B, for example, or, or, or a, a 2A with low acetylcholine or 1A. Then if they, you take a 1A, you can get strong as hell, but it takes him forever to learn to transfer that skill into the sports skill. But if you do a squat, then you rest maybe 30, 45 seconds, and then you do a short sprint. Over time, as you're getting stronger, you are also learning to apply that strength in the sprinting movement. So for someone with low skill transfer, it could be a very, very powerful tool. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about and where I got the pre-fatigue idea and the skill, and maybe there's a little misinterpretation either on my end or their end, but it was uh, Franz Bosch was talking about this, uh, referring, and I, I, he led me to this experiment that Paul Venner did, who uh, has the aqua bags, and he, it was his, I think his master's thesis research at St. Mary's, and it was on baseball players, and half of the group would um, do like their weight training. And I think it was just sets of 10. And that's probably the really important variable is what was the sets. And I want to say it was like a two or three sets of 10. I'm not 100% sure, but it was somewhere in that ballpark. And then and one group did the weight training and then did hitting practice or did hitting practice and then the weight training. And one group intermixed the hitting or with the weight training. So they would do a set of lit weights and do yeah. a, a set of hitting. And the group that intermixed it uh, improved their bat speed significantly. And they were talking about fatigue, like the idea of, oh, you fatigued it, so the body has to find new fibers. But with what you're saying, it's really more just, it increases the sense, the sense, um, the sensory. Like it's, uh, I guess, unless you're really taking that set of 10 of the house, like every time. Well, you, you can increase sensitivity or, or you can also decrease protective inhibition. And that's something that people don't understand. Okay. And it, it, that's going to sound weird because, okay. How can weakening a muscle make that muscle faster? Well, if your muscles are so strong that and you're naturally explosive, your body can protect itself by making you decelerate sooner into the movement. Okay, let's say you're jumping, let's say you're not jumping, but let's say you're bench pressing. Okay, let's use the bench press and you have only the empty barbell and you're trying to lift it as explosively as humanly possible. Well, just to, if you're super explosive, you can produce so much speed from that first part of the movement that as soon as the first quarter is done subconsciously, the brain starts to decelerate the bar. So you don't have a ballistic shock that is too intense at the end of the range of motion. See what I mean? Yeah. So, so if I were to pre-fatigue my chest, and my triceps with regular bodybuilding training. And then at the end of my session, I would ask you, go to the empty bar, do the most explosive bench press you can, the empty barbell. In many cases, especially in explosive athletes, the speed, the top speed, not the, not the top acceleration, but the top speed would probably be higher 
with the barbell when it wasn't at the end of the workout. Because the muscles being slightly weaker, the body allowed you subconsciously to accelerate for a longer part of the range of motion because now it did not fear hurting yourself as much. So you had a longer portion to accelerate, resulting in a, in a higher top speed, even though you have a lower acceleration. Top acceleration, you have a higher velocity, okay? So if you, can, if you look at that speed, you can have the same thing at play because now the body feels safer because, hey, I did not produce as much initial acceleration. I'm safe. I can accelerate for longer, but the longer period of acceleration leads to a higher bat speed. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. And one of the, I mean, where I'm headed with a lot of things is just uh, how to optimally, how to use weightlifting as a motor learning enhancer, you know, like it, where, where it can go beyond uh, just being in the weight room. And that's one a, guy you could interview about that is Stephen Jones. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah he's been on the show before. Actually, I need to get him back. He he does awesome stuff. Yeah, with cricket and fast pitch. And... I actually trained him when he was younger. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. When he was still playing both cricket and rugby, I trained him, and we still have a great working relationship again. So he's big into the neurotyping himself. He he, he wants to apply it to the uh, the uh, all the cricket players in India. Oh yeah, Stefan is a motor learning genius, and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I need to. I need actually shoot. I should probably uh, get in contact with him here soon and brainstorm. Uh, and I, I, um, I was gonna say too, like with the, so with the two Bs, like we were talking two Bs, and this is something that I just think is interesting. Like two Bs in a in a sport where body weight is fixed or or should be. You know, if you gain mass, it could be bad. Like if you're a middle yeah. distance track track or swimmer or or wrestling or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. What um. Like what, what considerations are you, or what main objectives are you now making in the weight room to give them what they need from a brain perspective, a prep perspective, but then also make sure that they're not, because they're like mass, you know, they're volume people and sensation people, but you don't want to, you don't want to mess them up basically. That's what I'm saying. Weirdly enough, with them, I I use concurrent training. So for example, they would do, let's say for example, the A1, A2 exercises. Okay. Then after that, we would do a bout of hard intervals. Then we would do the B1, B2, and then do a bout of very hard intervals, maybe five, six, maybe seven minutes in the lactate zone because they they, they really do well on that lactic acid. Uh, And then they would do C1, C2, and they would finish with a hard bout of of intervals. I would probably vary the interval type uh, various phases of the workout. So what that will do first, it, it keep the two Bs actually love that lactic acid feeling, and they they need external cues that they or external feedback that they're doing a great job. So looking at that puddle of sweat at the bottom of the apparatus or the prowler or whatever, it, it keeps them motivated. That will allow them to keep their in, insulin sensitivity up, which tends to be lower because of their low GABA. Um, it will also help them stay much leaner, uh, thus making weight, and it will allow them to build a little bit of muscle without exceeding their weight, but they still get that like, great mind-muscle feeling. Now, as far as training is concerned, uh, from, a, from a, a parameter perspective, what I focus on is simply using a slow recentric most of the time. But the way I train athletes here is uh, just, just to give you a brief overview of the way I plan training programs over athletes. I always, with athletes, I train the whole body. I, I, I Sometimes in some phases, I will use upper, lower, but most of the time it's a uh, whole body, uh, every workout. 
And we normally have three main workouts per week and one extra session. Uh, the three main workouts are uh, for the whole body, but they will focus on a different contraction type. So Monday could be centric, uh, Wednesday could be isometric, and Friday could be uh, concentric. And of course, depending on the training phase, the method being used would be different. So for example, during the first phase, we might do like super slow eccentric because it's longer duration. So maybe five, between three and five reps with an eight to 10 seconds eccentric and an explosive concentric, for example. Uh, during the second phase, uh, instead of using a super slow eccentric, we might go with a slow eccentric, but with a weight releaser. So adding an extra 10 to 20% to the barbell, lowering in five seconds, and then lifting explosively with the lighter weight. And then in the third phase, which would be the realization, we would do use uh, over speedy centrics. So either using uh, elastic bands and uh, the, the, the fastest eccentric you can to accumulate potential energy in, in attendance by using kinetic energy accumulation or using plyometrics, using the drop and catch method. So basically high speed eccentric. So you're going from uh, volume to intense uh, to high speed. Uh, the isometric would be the same thing. So you would start uh, with, with uh, let's say for example, uh, using isometric, isodynamic contrast. So I would hold uh, uh, the, the position of highest tension or a key position in the movement for 15 seconds. Then I would do, for example, four to six reps, something like that. The second week could be 20 seconds, third week, 25 seconds. So I'm increasing time under tension by increasing the duration of the pre-fatigue isometric. Then the second phase, I would do regular reps, but with an isometric pause of three seconds on every repetition. Uh, so just to increase the, uh, the isometric emphasis. And depending on the neurotype, the pause will be, because there's, there will be different, uh, some variations based on the neurotype. So for example, a 1B, even with a slow eccentric, I allow them to use the stretch reflex at the very bottom. So the, the, the last quarter of the range of motion will be very explosive. For, uh, uh, for example, for the isometric, for when there's a pause, uh, the, the 1B will take it mid-range so that he can still use the stretch reflex, whereas a 1A will use it in the bottom, for example. And then during the last phase, the isometric would be ballistic isometric. So basically absorbing force. So it, it kind of like the drop and catch method, but sticking the landing. Like I'm throwing something, I think you need to absorb it and catch it hard and, and hold it with maximum tension for about three seconds. Could be, you see depth landings from a, a, or depth landing push-up position, for example. And then the concentric, they would be a regular programming. So you could have, um, for example, uh, eight, six, four waves, the first block, you could have five, uh, six, four, two waves for the second block, and you can have a three to one wave for the last one. These are just examples. I use like 10,000 different loading methods and depending on the newer type, it would be different. And then the, the, the fourth day would depend on the phase. If it's earlier off season, uh, it would be structural balance, correcting weaknesses or, or technical movements, working on, uh, on technical uh, technique acquisition. Uh, during the second phase, it would be Olympic lifts from blocks, and the third phase would be Olympic lifts from the hang, for example. Um, and of course, depending on the neurotype, it will change the, 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 the level of difficulty, the type of Olympic lift. But that just to give you a broad idea of what it looks like. And of course, the training methods uh, and the loading schemes will change based on the neurotype. Yeah, I um with the with that two B in particular, and you're mm -hmm. you're talking about the eccentric protocol and the drop catches, and so yeah. well a couple of questions with that. Well, one, 
Um, so with that population, like a 2B who needs, or let's say a, a team sport 2B who really needs to get faster, yeah, yeah. Uh, how much of that type of you know fast work in the weight room can they really tolerate? If you're if you're tasked with getting fast in your 2B, what what's your approach there? One of the the approach I really like, and I can't take credit because it's from Jay Schroeder uh, of Evo Ultrafit. I work with Adam Archuleta and many many other top players. And it's a method that I use myself in my own training, and I love it. And I think it's actually perfect for a type 2B because it is explosive, but it uses very, very light weight, and it does create muscle fatigue and burn. It's the drop-and-catch method. So, for example, let's say I'm doing curls. I'm going to use curls because it's more, most, it's much easier to visualize for most people. So you would hold the top position of a curl. Then you, you basically let go of the bar while very rapidly moving your arms down to the 90 degrees position so that the arms reach that 90 degree position while the bar is still in the air and you have to catch it. And then as soon as you catch it, you lift it back up. A 2B does not have to lift it explosively at first. Just catching it hard will be enough to develop that explosive capacity. Now, here's the, here's the thing. The loading parameters are you do 10 seconds of work, 5 seconds of rest, and you do 10 sets. So the, light, the load would be very, very light. Like personally, okay, I don't have very strong biceps. That's never been my strong point. I will use a 20, 25 pound barbell. So that's really not heavy. Uh, when I do the movement for lateral raises, I will use eight pounds. So it's really not heavy. One arm at a time, of course, for, for lateral raises. But for 10, sec 10 seconds of work, you get probably, uh, because you want quality. So you're probably gonna do six or seven reps then you rest for five seconds, then you do it again, so four, 10, 10 sets. That, that's really a long, long time under tension. And oddly enough, you will get a pump from that and you will get muscle fiber fatigue and you will actually preferentially recruit the fast switch fibers. So for a 1B who needs to be explosive, he will actually get the feeling he craves, he will get the rapid gains he want, and it's not demanding on the nervous system not too much because the load is not heavy. Yes, you are amping up the nervous system, <clears throat> but in that case, it's much, much better than doing explosive lifts like Olymp Olympic lifts, like doing uh, jump squats, stuff like that. But I would, I think the secret with a type 2B is using the proper uh, nutritional and supplementation protocol post-workout to shut down the brain because food is your best ally to put your brain in the right uh, state to perform. I'm going to give you an example. One of the bobsleigh guy I'm training, okay, just freak athlete is just to give you an, an example for the story. The past year is slowest 30 meter sprint was 377, which is fast. It's not like lightning fast, but it's fast. Uh, well, you know, you know numbers better than I do. So is 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 no, no sorry, no, his worst was 381. Sorry about that. Is is worst. In the past year was 381. For the whole year, he never ran slower than 381. So we're about two weeks before the training camp. And he needs to be fast if he are to make, if he is to make the one of the first two teams. Now the cutoff to make the first selection process is to run at least 3-9. If you don't run 3-9, they don't even look at you for further tests. So he never ran like slower than 381, so that's not a problem, right? So Two weeks before, he, he takes the weekend off because he has something planned with his girlfriend. We normally always train at least once during the weekend. He doesn't take two days off in a row. Uh, he comes back to the track on Monday. He calls me up in panic. Chris, 
I just ran 393. Holy shit, 393, that's like more than one tenth of a second slower than your slowest time of the year, two weeks before the cut. And he's freaking out, right? And he said, well, you know, my, my muscles felt flat. I didn't feel them contracting. And also, of course, the first thing I'm thinking was maybe he was glycogen depleted, like flat muscle. He was sleepy. So I asked him, well, did you eat enough? Did you have enough carbs? Said, Dude, I hate all the carbs. Like I went to town all weekend, right? Like piling the carbs. On. Okay. Ah, okay. So, and he didn't train. So now, okay. So it, describe exactly how you felt the morning of your training. Well, my muscles fell flat. I said, did they feel flat as in small or like just no muscle tone? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. They felt like I had no muscle tone. Okay, that's different. Uh, and I felt unmotivated. I felt sleepy. I felt heavy. Okay, here's your problem. He's a 1B and he has a, an abnormally high level of serotonin, like super high. So he can tolerate any amount of volume. It's crazy. And he actually has high dopamine plus high dopamine sensitivity, which is very rare. Anyway, so what happened is that by not training, by eating mostly carbs and crap, he actually decreased his dopamine. Remember, when you eat more carbs, you favor the absorption of tryptophan over tyrosine, so you increase serotonin more. He already has sky-high level of serotonin, even more so because we were in the middle of a deload like a drastic decrease, a, a taper, I mean. So his serotonin was already super high, and he, he just ate so many carbs, it increased it so high that it was now impossible for him to get, get his nervous system amped up because his inhibitory neurotransmitter were a lot higher than his excitatory ones. So that's why the muscle tone was low, because it just couldn't, because muscle tone is nothing more than a partial neurological activation of the muscle. So he didn't even have the neurological activation to keep that muscle hard. And that's why he was not motivated. So he felt lazy because serotonin was super high, dopamine was super low. So I told him, okay, relax, just have protein, like just have proteins and fat for your next meal, rest for two hours, chill at home, and then go, 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 go sprint again. So he called me up and said, Chris, I, I just beat my PR on the loaded 20 meters. Yeah, because the first session actually amped up your dopamine. It was not enough to perform well during that session, not to overcome the serotonin, but by the second session, then it was back to your normal self. So nowadays when he trains, we never have carbs before his workouts. So if you work out for if we work out at one, all the meals prior to one will be proteins and fat only. And then after the workout, that's where we will have his carbs to increase recovery. Now with a 2B, a 2B, uh, of course, if you want to increase GABA by decreasing glutamate, you could actually put him on a keto diet. But if he is on a keto diet, uh, it will take a few weeks until he can do neurological work because it will take a few weeks to really increase that conversion of glutamate into GABA because you need to increase the circulating uh, ketones. Uh, but you could actually use supplements to increase GABA level post-workout. So you could use, um, uh, well, valerian roots. You could use vitamin B6. You can use Cola, You can use, um, well, GABA itself can actually be effective, even though some studies have shown that it is not properly absorbed. I, I find personally it actually works. Uh, CDB oil would actually work very well in that case to decrease anxiety, which is nothing more than a brain firing too fast. Uh, magnesium would help to dislocate adrenaline from the adrenergic receptors. 
So many, many different are, are, by the way, but with a 2B, don't use glycine. I, I often recommend glycine because I think it's a superb product. Glycine is an amino acid that is also a neurological inhibitor. It, it works a lot like GABA on the nervous system. It calms it down. Uh, on top of that, it activates mTOR, which increases protein synthesis. So I use it post-workout with most of the athletes I work with or most of my clients because it shuts down the brain, decreasing cortisol, decreasing the chance of CNS, not CNS, but nervous fatigue, uh, and also increase protein synthesis. But with a type 2B, especially a type 2B who still has high glutamate, glycine become an excitatory neurotransmitter. The excess glutamate changes the function of glycine. So if you give glycine to a type 2B, it will actually impair his recovery. So you go, want to go with magnesium, you want to go with valerian root, you want to use GABA itself uh, or any supplement that can increase GABA. Like Fenibut is great at that. CDB oil can also help decrease anxiety, even though it works slightly better with people with serotonin issues, but it can still help those with GABA issues. By the way, most of the time, if someone has GABA issues and he has been having those for a while, you need to fix serotonin before fixing GABA. And that's really important. That's interesting. It, it makes me think of like, you know, something like the NFL combine. Like if your nutrition was, was uh, if you know, too much carbs or something leading up to that, if there was nothing, no thought of that, and it adversely affected you, that would be really detrimental. And Dude, it, could, it, could, it could cost you millions of dollars. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what, I mean, what do you think? I mean, you just said that your the athlete, I mean, he, he ran three nine three, and then he shaved like a couple tenths off just by kind of getting. Uh... Well, after that, with the proper peaking procedures, uh, he he hit three seven five, which was his okay. all time best. Okay, wow, it it really is amazing. I mean, nutrition is an area that's probably been of of all my areas of expertise is probably my most lacking. But as soon as you say, oh yeah, you're gonna run this much faster, or this is this yeah. this is this important in peaking, and especially based on your neurology, it's like, okay, <laughs> what is this? I'm do? the same way, dude. I, that's why I have a nutrition guy. Like Stefano Bay is my nutrition guy, is my supplementation guy. And uh, I, even when I was training bodybuilders, I just hate the nutrition portion. I hate it with a vengeance. Uh, I, I always eat like an asshole. I mean, I'm, I'm really not a good example for diet. It, it, it's just not a topic that interests me that much. But if we're talking about manipulating brain chemistry or manipulating performance, then it becomes interesting. So I won't talk to you about like ratios or recipes, but I will talk about timing though, because using nutrients to put you in a certain neurological state, that's in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that it takes something like that for me to really latch onto it as well. Yes. Uh, you, yes. Chris, you kind of answered uh, one of my questions, which was kind of general ideas for recovering from workouts with dopamine in mind. Yes. You had talked about a few supplements. Um, is there any uh, is there anything other like general principles or things that sweep across different neurotypes for how to recover better from a nutritional perspective? How to... if, there's, if there's one supplement from a recovery perspective that any neurotype can benefit from, it would be lion's mane. Hmm. Like lion's mane is uh, first because it is involved in nerve regeneration. Uh, it decreases nervous system um, inflammation, uh, brain inflammation, uh, systemic inflammation. Uh, it increases the production of several neurotransmitters. It has dopaminergic effect. It has acetylcholinergic effect. Uh, and, and it also has anti-anxiety effect. So uh, for any type, it will actually, for, for a type 1, 
it will help them stay motivated it will help them prevent that that crash from a decrease in dopamine uh, since they love that neurologically intense training it will help regenerate the nerves uh, recover from nervous system workouts for a type 2b and type 3 it decreases anxiety which is nothing more than the brain firing too fast which will slow down the brain after a workout increasing recovery and also helping them sleep uh, and just making them feel better overall uh, if i were to design uh, a supplement line targeting the nervous system, it would be in the formulation for every neurotype. I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I that's good stuff. And I like I like that it can be there can be general things too, like no matter what anyone yeah. lines made. So that's it. Well, it, and it, it some uh, that's the most general one, but it, uh, vitamin B6 should be used by everybody. But I mean, in its like properly absorbed form, like pyridoxin or P, P5P. Everybody should use that because it is involved in the production. It's a cofactor in the production of pretty much every neurotransmitter. You just can't have optimized neurotransmitter function if you're vitamin B6 deficient. So that's another thing that most people should be taking. Um, there are also supplements that mo that many neurotypes can use, like just simple good old tyrosine. Tyrosine will work great for 1A, 1B, 2As, and 2Bs pre-workout. However, they will need to take a downer after the session uh, because it will amp them up too much. I wouldn't use it with a type 3 because it will get, make them anxious during the workout. But tyrosine, will actually, I actually use tyrosine as a test to know if someone has depleted dopamine or if it's resistance in the adrenergic receptors. So if someone is exhibiting signs of what we call CNS fatigue, by the way, CNS fatigue is not a thing. You don't fatigue the central nervous system. You fatigue neurotransmitters or, or you create resistance in the receptors. So for example, the symptoms of what we often call CNS fatigue are lack of motivation, lack of drive, decrease in, in concentration, a decrease in pleasure called anhedonia. Um, you have decrease in sex drive, uh, less willingness to make effort, to do effort. You're lazy, mood swings. Now that can happen after a very intense workout, for example. Now, uh, what it can actually be, it's not, it's not the fatigue of your brain. It's either you that you depleted dopamine or that your adrenergic receptors are now re temporarily resistant to your own adrenaline. Because, and both can happen for the same reason. If you overstimulated the sympathetic nervous system, if I produce too much adrenaline, uh, you, you either keep the adrenaline connected to the adrenergic receptors for too much, uh, too long, uh, too long, or too much. In that case, the receptors would become resistant, and it would be a problem mostly with the type two A's like me. Or by producing so much adrenaline, you depleted your dopamine because adrenaline is made from dopamine, uh, which would hit mostly the 1A and the 1B. So the, the way you can test what is the issue is that when you feel like crap in the morning, take 7 to 10 grams of tyrosine on an empty stomach and note how you feel 30 minutes later. If you feel dramatically different, like I'm feeling like a new person, like a million bucks, I'm happy again, then you know the problem is dopamine depletion because a tyrosine increased dopamine back up to optimal level. If you feel a little bit better, but not that much, 
but it's still you can still notice a difference but like not night and day it's probably a, a dopamine receptor resistance because you didn't necessarily deplete your dopamine but you didn't have enough to target your receptors because now they're resistant by increasing dopamine level you can kind of compensate that and you get a little bit better if there's no change then it's a, a desensitization of the adrenergic receptors because even if you pile up dopamine if you stop responding to your own adrenaline it doesn't make any difference yeah that's it's it's really important i feel like to know that stuff because i mean for me personally every time i go and you know to, to jump or lift or whatever and like just the bar feels heavier i just can't get mm. you know kids can't don't have that pop you just kind of like, oh, you know, I'm just overtrained. Like to know that there's more going on and to really know yeah. what's going rather than you burnt out your CNS or whatever that Dude, term is. In my, in my life as a coach, and I've been coaching for 21 or 22 years, I can't remember, I'm getting old. Uh, I've, I've seen two real cases of overtraining. Now, of course, when you work with swimmers, you're going to see more because the volume is horrible. It's not as, as bad as it was in the 90s and 80s, but it's still pretty out there. Uh, but in, I've seen very, very few case, real cases of overtraining. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, but for most people, it's simply a temporary situation, like a depletion of a neurotransmitter, resistance of receptor. Uh, maybe you, you're, you're, uh, you have problems with overactive sympathetic nervous system due to excessive cortisol, because that's one thing, right? People misunderstand the, the connection between cortisol and the sympathetic nervous system. People think that, oh, I'm producing cortisol because I'm in sympathetic system, right? So I'm increasing adrenaline, I'm, my, my system, uh, sympathetic nervous system is turned on, so I produce cortisol. It's the other way around. The cortisol is what puts you in that sympathetic mode. The cortisol is what increases adrenaline. Cortisol increases the conversion of noradrenaline into adrenaline to put you into that hyped up mode, okay? Cortisol, people call it the stress hormone. That's really a misnomer. It should be called the readiness hormone. Cortisol puts your body in a state that it will be ready to face anything. It mobilizes stored energy and it increases wakefulness and alertness and it increases muscle contraction strength. It increases heart rate. How does it do those last two things, the wakefulness and alertness, as well as the heart contraction strength and blood flow? It, it does that by increasing adrenaline. So the cortisol, it increase energy mobilization so that you don't run out of fuel. It increase alertness so that you will be able to fight a tiger and see all the opportunities for battle and all the opportunity to win, for example, or be creative, be instinctive. Uh, think out of the box, be more functional. It also increases uh, muscle contraction strength and heart contraction strength, thus increasing blood flow to the muscle, increasing oxygen delivery and helping you get rid of those metabolites that might limit performance. It also increases the contraction of your muscles so you'll be stronger, better at fighting a tiger, of course. It shuts down the immune system, okay? Uh, yeah, but isn't the immune system important for facing a stress? No, it's not. It's important to repair the damage caused by the stress. But while you're facing the stress, it's like sending more energy to the replicator and holodeck on the Star Trek Enterprise. When you're fighting, you want all the energy on the deflector shields. So the cortisol will decrease 
the activation of the immune system so that it has more resources for the defenses. When the stress is over, cortisol should go back down, immune system goes back online, now you are in repair mode. The problem is that in modern society, cortisol stays elevated way too long and you have problems repairing damage because the immune system, repairing muscle tissue, is dependent on the immune system. So that's what cortisol do, and that's why cortisol increases adrenaline, not the other way around. When you wake up uh, in the morning without an alarm clock and you're ready to go without needing coffee, uh, it's, people say, say, well, it's because your cortisol is healthy. You had a cortisol spike that woke you up. No, the cortisol spike did not wake you up. The cortisol spike happened just before you woke up, in cre creating an adrenaline spike that wakes you up and gives you energy. So what we need to understand from that is when you are in a situation where you're constantly overproducing cortisol, you are constantly converting adrenaline, uh, noradrenaline into adrenaline, and by, the, by extension, risking depleting dopamine. That's the negative impact of overall stress on performance and recovery, especially neurological recovery. Yeah, I like I like that idea of renaming cortisol. The readiness, uh, yeah. it's the readiness hormone, not. Uh, That's what it does. Stuff. That's what it does. It it, it do, does everything possible to make it easier for you to face enemy you might face. You might have to face. Yeah, it's it's. I just really love uh, learning about those ins and outs of exactly where the fatigue comes from. Because it's just if it hits you as general, it's like you just don't know where to go. It's just rest. It's there's there's so much more in the equation. Uh, Dude, sometimes rest will make you perform worse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're a two, yeah, two like you said, you're one uh, B who had the weekend to rest, you know, the th several days yeah. in a row off, and and what that does, with, and that's the same thing with me. I I just had three days off myself recently here because uh, I had some people were sick in my family and taking care of them and busy weekend and that first workout, it's like I dread it, like I intentionally cannot go hard because I just know what's coming. So it's just like yeah. gotta ease back in. Uh, hey, I got one more quick question for you here because uh, I really was excited to ask you this, um, and that's uh, the idea of uh, along the lines of neurotyping and training is that's training frequency. And I know like the, the one B, the one A, like the neurologically loaded um, athletes uh, who that crackling nervous system can handle high, um, they can handle training the nervous system more frequently. Yeah. Um, and I think about like, you know, the Bulgarian weightlifters and they're doing that. And, and I've had, I've personally had some very good luck as a one B doing things like depth jumps every day. Uh, yeah. But I wonder I also wonder, is there a balance there? Because I know in some programs that you've written for 1B, um, and, and maybe these are more bodybuilding driven. In fact, they probably were. So I'll, I'll put that out. But like, but at where you might work the lower body twice and the upper body twice or something like that. Like, is there a, what are some general guidelines for high frequency training if you're going to do something like a lift a well, day or something like that? That's a good question. But when we take, as you mentioned, the programs on the website are, are mostly like body composition, bodybuilding thing, uh, dealing with people who, who, who don't do other type of activities outside of the gym and who, for whom a sub-max, sub-optimal performance one day at a sometime, it, it's not that. For an athlete, my, my mentality is that you need to have your nervous system as close to 100% as possible at every time, at every session. Uh, because when your nervous system is not close to 100, if it's like 75, 80, uh, first of all, you're just gonna build up more fatigue, but your performance will, will be bad. Even, even if the numbers are actually pretty good, 
there will be some compensatory mechanisms happening. Your your risk of injury increases, motivation decreases. So a lot of bad things can happen. So you with a bodybuilder, it doesn't matter. I mean, if as long as you don't like overtrain, as I meant, well, not overtrain, but do way too much, and then from week to week you just get worse and worse and worse. That's too much. But if for one day out of the week, maybe even two out of five, you you're not your regular self, it won't matter that much as compared to an athlete. Now, that's why for an athlete, I, I never, except for some like exceptions, I, I never have more than four lifting workouts a week. And most of the time, it's it's only three of those workouts are, are intense session. The other one is more like a structural balance, correcting your weaknesses, uh, maybe improving mobility, uh, stuff like that. Uh, but it's only three workouts and the volume is fairly low. That's the thing, right? You cannot, and that's why I, I don't like, well, I'd like to sell more of the product on my website, but if you're an athlete, don't buy those programs, okay? Even though they, they have an athletic feel, they use athletic method for someone who wants to train like a bodybuilder. It's like the middle ground. Uh, but for an athlete, I, I, I use a, a minimalist approach. I, I use the least amount of volume to get the job done all the time. Now, as far as frequency is concerned, don't, don't forget that athletes, they don't do just weight training. So they don't need to lift heavy or, or do an all-out workout every day. Like What I often do is kind of like what you did is do like a neural charge session, like for 15, 10, 20 minutes, just a few explosive exercises on your quote unquote days off from lifting just to keep the nervous system crackling. Uh, that works well as well, as long as it's not, not at fatiguing level. But they, they, don't, they don't need to go hard six days a week. They, they probably can survive it. Doesn't mean it's optimal for an athlete, especially since they are practicing their sport or doing other things than just lifting weights. No, for sure. Yeah, not and uh, or being in a Bulgarian training hall with the coach, like yeah, but that's the thing. That, that, that is that is a different animal altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's Tiger Woods, right? Yes. You, <laughs> you cannot look at what Tiger Woods did and say I'm going to use that model for everybody, right? There is one Tiger Woods. Okay, maybe a few like Korean or, or Japanese players like started at the same time and became decent players, but, but most of the guys who tried to do that ended up like, like, like with, a, with a lifetime uh, psychiatrist or psychologist <laughs> scheduling. It's just, it's just way too hard. So, so when you look at the Bulgarian system, it, it works through a natural selection process. I mean, they don't start out training three times a day, six days a week. Uh, it's a school system. You start lifters when they are what they call they call class four or even class five, the lowest class. You're class five. Then you, for each class, there's a there's a weight class and a total you must reach. If you reach that total, you can move up to class four, for example. Well, all the class five lifters, it's three workouts per week, for example. All the class four lifters, it's four workouts per week. All the class three lifters, it's four workouts per week, but they're one of these days is two a days. Then you move to the class three lifters, it's four workouts, but two two a days. Then you move to the class two, five days a week with two two a days, and so on and so forth. And those who make it to the system that uses the, the extreme Bulgarian approach are the master, the, the master of sports and the master of sports international class. 
And these guys have been through all the stepping stones. So basically, at every level, we weed out those who can't tolerate that amount of volume. So the Bulgarian lifters are, for the most case, from what I'm seeing anyway, they are very sensitive to dopamine, have very high level of both GABA and serotonin, which is kind of unusual, and they probably have a fairly high amount of dopamine production, even if they are sensitive. So they are extremely impossible to overtrain, neurologically speaking, and it's through a selection process. It's, if a thousand lifters enter the program, one will make it to the end. So you cannot apply the logic. And people will say, well, I'm going to just tone down the Bulgarian system. Well, you can't do that. Okay? You either take it all or you don't take it at all because it's a progression and it's meant to select those who are naturally designed to be weightlifters. It's not a system designed to build lifters. It's a system built to reveal lifters. That's different. I like that. Not built, but to reveal. That's a uh, good, good. Uh, yeah, it's a good uh, synopsis. And in, in that, yeah, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods and Bulgarian system. I'm definitely linking those together. Uh, but great show today. I did before we uh, go. I did want to say your um, the neuro. There's a neurotyping survey on your website now. Do you want to tell us about that real quick? Well, it's a questionnaire I developed with my uh, my father. My father, of course, uh, was a both a clinical psychologist. Then he became uh, well, he was also a college professor. His specialty was creating uh, psychological assessments, uh, and then he, he moved on to human resources. So his sole job was selecting personnel for big enterprises based on their psychological profile. So we designed the te that test together. Uh, so it helps you know if you're a type 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, and type 3. Now, it, like, like all written assessment, it, it's not like a be-all, end-all, because it is. it basically reveals what you think you are. That's the thing, because you might think, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm super talented. I learn new skills very easily. But you ask people around you, they're going to laugh at your face. So it, it basically is... It is biased by your own perception of yourself. But if you are honest, it is a pretty good clue. Now, in about 8% out of 10, the answer will be pretty clear. But in 2 or 3 out of 10 people, we have two scores that are fairly equal, sometimes even three scores. When there are three scores, in my opinion, it's always a two-way. Because it means that you are mimickers. You can be anybody depending on the situation. Uh, so so it... it I'm, I'm working on a new one. I mean, I like this one for people who want to know which program to buy or, or which diet to buy or get a general idea of this is how I should be training. I want to create one specifically for coaches that will be slightly different because instead of testing for your neurotype, it will test for neurological balance, kind of like what the Braverman did. So uh, it will tell you, okay, you are, you are dopamine sensitive with high acetylcholine, high serotonin, middle GABA, low glutamate, for example. So it will give you a profile like that. And to me, for a coach, that is a lot more useful than just knowing, okay, you're a type 2A. Because you could be a type 2A with high acetylcholine and high serotonin. So you could train almost exactly like a 1B, for example. So to me, knowing individual neurotransmitter, if you understand the system well, is a much better tool to train athletes. 
Yeah, it, it sounds something that could be really insightful for a lot of people, especially with yeah. everything you've shared about the neurotransmitters on our show today. Um, I, I think it, that sounds really cool how you created that, and I think it'll help a lot of Why people. Why not show? I'd like to listen to it. It sounds really interesting. I mean, I, I was listening to a talk, and it, it sounded pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm excited to go back through it and make some show notes out of it. Edit. It'll be uh, it's like uh, it's almost like in some ways it's like I'm in school again, but it's something that I actually really want to study and I'm excited about. So, and by the way, talking about being in school again, I started uh, taking classes myself in uh, synergology, which is the uh, analysis of body language. Oh, because awesome! It, it's great because it really goes well with the new typing. It's funny because I was talking to a teacher. And we're making connection about personality profiles and nonverbal cues, like what they do with their eyes, with their hands and, and posture, stuff like that. And it's pretty cool. It's funny because we had a drill and um, we, we had to, they, they, because we were uh, making scenarios and they gave us a card and we had, we, were, we had to act as a certain personality. And uh, either, well, they don't have the five types, but you either had to be the dominant you had either had to be the more submissive or you had to be the person who, who, who just is in the middle ground, like who wants to agree with everybody. It's funny because uh, Stefan and my, 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 my right hand man, who's also a 2A, Stefan is like my carbon copy, but like he's 6'2 and better looking. But mentally speaking, we're, we're pretty much the same person. It's funny. And we both drew the same card. We had to be the dominant person. And it's funny because as soon as the simulation started, we both stood up and we were just arguing. And we, when we looked at the tapes and the still pictures, we are doing the exact same gestures at exactly the same time. I mean, even when we are pretending to be one A's, we were two A's. <laughs> Oh, that's good stuff. I, I, I'd be that would be a trip to be in that class with you guys. So maybe, maybe the CIA or FBI yeah, will hire the, you someday too. The class too. itself was awesome because, well, because of the people involved. It was limited to six people, but it was myself, Steph, my right hand guy. We had uh, one of my two of my great friends who are very high level posturologists. So they, they work with the nervous system, they work with the vestibular system, the, the, the proprioceptive system. And one was uh, a good friend of mine who's uh, one of the top uh, interventional nutritionists. So she works with uh, athletes who screwed up their metabolic rate, who just have uh, depression and use nutrition and supplementation to fix them. So we all had like our the same, we basically have the same opinion on everything, but we all have our own perception. So we actually use the synergology material as a sounding board for our own ideas. And it was an awesome group to be part of. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that stuff is so interesting to me. Uh, but I think that's uh, it for our time today. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Christian. It was awesome having you back. I learned so much every time I talk to you. So thanks again. Cool, let's make it a repeat. All right. Thanks for tuning in for this uh, week's episode. I know it was a long show, but there was so much good stuff in there. Uh, if you want to recap as well of a lot of the main points, check out the show notes on justflysports.com. Uh, again, there is a website, justflysports.com. It is interesting how many people I know listen to the podcast, but we do have a lot of good stuff on the website as well. Uh, also, if you want to check out a review of Christian's neurotyping system, that's also on the website as I've gone through it, and it is truly excellent. As always, if you enjoyed this show, and what we're up to, don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher. We'd really appreciate it, and it really helps spread the word. 
on what we're trying to do as we serve coaches and athletes in this field. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, and they are leaders in distribution of, of sports science, tech, data, and training aids. Uh, finally, before I let you guys go, don't forget uh, my new book, Speed Strength, is out, and it is in the store at justflysports.com, a product of three years of very hard and intensive work and lots and lots of talking with the Darien Bar, but it is finally out, and I think it's awesome. So check that out. And we'll see you guys next week with another great guest.